0: Good morning, folks. Welcome back to Inclined. This is our podcast for Affinity Clinical Education. My name's Rob Timmings, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Just a quick little episode today, and it's actually been uh, in response to a couple of questions that have come in from some nurses that are are working around the ridges. Uh, This is crazy times. We're right in the middle of, or the very beginning of spring. It's the, uh, what is it, first week of September? And... uh, uh, one of the questions that has come through, possibly in response to um, some of the education that we've started to put up and some of the lectures that we've got up on the portal, is about oxygen and, well, the question was about oxygen and chest pain. And it was, it was um, along the lines of, whilst we understand that we don't routinely use oxygen for chest pain patients, the first part of the question was, why don't we? any longer? Like, why did we stop using oxygen for chest pain patients? And the the second question is, are there circumstances where oxygen would be indicated? And I just thought, well, it is an excellent question. Uh, It's two very excellent questions, because all of a sudden, we were told, stop using oxygen. Um, With very, very little explanation, unless you really dived into it or delved into it, uh, there was very little explanation as to why we would stop using oxygen. So it seems absolutely reasonable to dedicate a, a bit of a podcast so that we can actually look at it. So so here we go. Um, so just to bring everybody up to speed, um, we, we no longer routinely put an oxygen mask on our patients with chest pain, thought specifically to have cardiac chest pain. So think angina, myocardial infarction, any kind of ischemic chest pain that the patient might have, uh, and and it actually stopped in Australia, or it was discouraged strongly, shall we say, in Australia, uh, in two thousand and ten is when it when it really all sort of ground to a halt. So that's uh, what ten years ago now. And it was actually the work of a, a, a collaboration uh, of a number of researchers that did a meta-analysis uh, led by a fellow called Juan Cabello, C-A-B-E-L-L-O, if you wanted to look up that work. And it was commissioned um, by the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation. Uh, there was a lot written in the literature. In fact, there has been a lot lit- written in the literature since... Uh, since the, the early 1900s, 1901 was when it was first suggested that we should stop using oxygen for heart attack patients. 1901. Uh, and, um, and, a, and a lot has, a lot has occurred um, in terms of the research and looking into whether oxygen and chest pain are a, are a good match or not. Uh, since those times, things really ramped up in about 2007 when a when a New Zealand researcher called Beasley and and his colleagues looked at oxygen with ischemic heart disease uh, and whether it was sensible to continue using oxygen. Uh, and it all sort of came to a head in 2010 when Cabello was commissioned to do this big meta analysis. And what that that team did is they looked at all of the literature that we have on using oxygen uh, in the context of ischemic. Um, chest pain so that is uh that is patients who have an episode of chest pain where there is uh where there is thought to be an absence of oxygen supply to the heart and it it makes sense give oxygen if somebody's not got enough oxygen to their heart but does it really make sense um so what's happened since two thousand and ten? Well, the uh, the Australian Resuscitation Council, the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, and the Australian and New Zealand Council on Resuscitation ands uh and all of the emergency uh, gurus in the country have uh, have have come on board with this notion that yes, there is not enough evidence to use oxygen and compelling evidence to suggest that it's actually harmful and that the routine application of oxygen um, via an oxygen mask or certainly a, a, a via a high-flow oxygen mask onto a patient's face, is, the moment they arrive or present with chest pain should stop. So let's look at three reasons why. Uh, reason number one, your, your hemoglobin picks up oxygen in the lungs and it saturates up to nominally 100 percent so your hemoglobin molecule holds four little oxygens it's almost got like it's like it's got four receptors to hold an oxygen molecule four of those so when your hemoglobin molecule in your red blood cell is is holding on to four oxygens it can't hold any more it's saturated And so the premise is that if I've got a piece of heart muscle that is not being well oxygenated, the premise was always, well, let's just give a patient more oxygen and we'll see if we can get more oxygen to that heart muscle. But the reason that the heart in a situation where somebody's got myocardial infarction, the reason that their heart is actually uh, ischemic is not because the lungs aren't putting oxygen in the blood. There's nothing wrong with that process. It's because there's a blockage or a narrowing or a constriction to a blood vessel leading to that portion of the heart. So the fix is not to put more oxygen in the blood. The fix is to make the pipe bigger or to clear the pipe or to remove the blockage or to, to relax the smooth muscle wall of the, of the coronary vessel. The, the, the fix is, is, is not to put more cars on the road. The fix is to make the road wider, essentially. And so in an attempt to try and oxygenate our patients' hearts better in a state of ischemia, what we would do is we would throw oxygen on their face in the hope that that would sort of filter through, that it would diffuse through, and that they would actually, by collateral flow with tiny little tributary blood vessels... um, would be able to perfuse the heart if if one of their main arterial sources uh, were blocked with say a clot myocardial infarction might be a clot in a in a coronary vessel uh, coronary artery then one of the smaller arterioles that lead to the same tissue but but through smaller vessels may we may be able to oxygenate collaterally and, and and that would have been a reasonable theory but for the fact that perhaps in the early days we ignored some of the other properties of oxygen and we'll go through that in a minute so coming back to the hemoglobin, if there's nothing wrong with your lungs in the middle of a heart attack, and there's nothing wrong with the blood actually therefore absorbing the oxygen from your lungs, from the alveoli, so there's nothing wrong with that external respiration process, then then the premise would be, where's the oxygen going to go? If we're putting oxygen on somebody's face and your blood is already saturated, and saturated means saturated, you know, if you were naked in a swimming pool and I sprayed you with a hose, you're not getting any wetter you're saturated and haemoglobin is saturated. So putting more oxygen on the patient's face, there's nowhere in the haemoglobin molecule for it to be able to be carried. So the number one reason is you don't put more oxygen on the patient because they can't carry it. They, it's just wasteful. So that, that's perhaps the first reason. The second part of that statement was, well, where's the oxygen going to go? Well... As we increase oxygen's FiO2, fraction of inspired oxygen, oxygen percentage, as we increase the amount of oxygen that somebody breathes, what we're actually doing at a, at, a, at, a, at a physics level is we're increasing the partial pressure of the oxygen that they're breathing. So the partial pressure of the oxygen that you're breathing right now is about 150. But if I was to put 50% oxygen on your face then your partial pressure of oxygen that you're breathing is close to 300, 330. And so you can see that that's almost three times as much oxygen. So 50%, ironically, not ironically, but chaotically when you look at the maths, 50% oxygen is, is almost the equivalent, well it is, the equivalent of giving three times the concentration of oxygen that room air gives you. And I know right now your head's doing spins because you're going, well, hang on, if there's 21% oxygen in the room air and there's 50% oxygen, then surely 50 is not three times 21. But it doesn't work like that. And we can, you, can ha- you can have a look at our, our respiratory physiology video if you're interested in all the, the geeky numbers. But the point is this. When you put a 50% oxygen mask on a patient, you're giving them three times the oxygen that they're breathing from room air. So if you can't carry it on haemoglobin... The only place you can carry it is to literally dissolve it into the plasma. The liquid component of your blood is the plasma. And so so as you increase the FiO2 that you give to a patient, you increase the amount of dissolved oxygen in plasma. And this brings the patient's PaO2, the oxygen pressure, the PaO2. It brings that up. Now normally your PaO2, when you're breathing room air, is approximately 80 to 100 Millimetres of mercury, that's that's considered to be normal, 80 to 100. But when breathing 50% oxygen, that's almost three times as high. And the problem with that is that as I start to breathe higher concentrations of oxygen and dissolve more oxygen in my plasma, not my haemoglobin because it's saturated, but in my plasma, high concentrations of plasma-bound oxygen have a vasoconstrictive effect. Now think about what we're trying to achieve with our heart attack patient, with our patient with an MI. We've got a blood vessel that's in spasm, that's potentially blocked with an atheromatous plaque that's ruptured, that's formed a clot. And now what we want to do is open that blood vessel. We want to relax that smooth muscle wall of that blood vessel. That's why we give GTN. That's one of the reasons why we give uh, fentanyl, or or we used to use morphine, but fentanyl now. Uh, It's why we rest the patient. It's why we give beta blocker medication. It's why we may use calcium channel blockers. Everything is geared towards opening the blood flow to perfuse the heart better it seems counterintuitive to want to put something on the patient's face that we know is going to cause a vasoconstriction. And that's what oxygen does. It's a vasoconstrictor. The higher the concentration of oxygen we put on our patient, the more vasoconstriction we actually get in those coronary vessels. And that shuts down all of those tiny little collateral blood flowing blood vessels that we were trying to engage with to perfuse that piece of heart muscle if you're coronary artery is blocked the only way we can get blood flow through to the to the muscle tissue behind that blockage is through those little tiny little collateral blood vessels but they also vasoconstrict under the influence of oxygen worsening the overall oxygenation of that patient's heart so Two reasons we don't use oxygen. One is hemoglobin's full, it can't carry any more. And two is that as that oxygen now starts to dissolve into plasma and your PaO2 rises, this becomes vasoconstrictive and it, re- it reduces the oxygenation. Ironically, it reduces the oxygenation in that heart muscle. It's exactly the same for cerebral tissue. So the same applies for stroke patients. So it reduces blood flow to the very tissue that we're trying to improve flow to. The third reason, and this is perhaps the most compelling reason, and that is uh, that it causes harm. When you breathe oxygen, when I breathe oxygen, when we breathe oxygen, inevitably some of those oxygen molecules that we're breathing split. And as one oxygen atom splits from its partner atom. Remember, oxygen comes as two molecules bound together. It's diatomic, meaning two oxygen atoms joined together. That's why we call it O2. As those oxygens are being consumed, uh, some of them inevitably split, and the single oxygen atoms are negatively charged, and they're what we call highly reactive. And so... A highly reactive oxygen species, by another name, is called an oxygen-free radical. And what it does is it joins with other chemicals or other fluids within your body. That single oxygen negatively charged atom is looking for a positively charged uh, iron somewhere to stick to. So it, it finds positively charged hydrogen and makes hydroxyl atoms uh, molecules. It sticks to water and makes hydrogen peroxide molecules it sticks to nitrogen and it makes nitric oxide molecules so there's multiple uh, what's called free radicals or reactive oxygen species have been created by breathing oxygen now that's happening in your body right now it's happening in my body right now just by breathing room air but it's magnified when we breathe higher concentrations of oxygen now These oxygen-free radicals, or these reactive oxygen species, they are damaging to cell membranes. And what they do is they, they essentially steal electrons from the cell membranes of every cell in your body, but particularly brain cells, nerve tissue, kidney tissue, and cardiac tissue, cardiac muscle. These cell membranes are most susceptible to damage that's caused by these free radicals. So here we've got a patient that's got an ischemic, starving piece of heart muscle. We give them a high flow of oxygen. We give them an increase in concentration of oxygen their body is making a whole lot of these free radicals and then eventually we're going to open up that blockage. We might stent them or we might dissolve their clot with a a drug like tenecteplase or we might give them some GTN and and relax that smooth muscle of their blood vessel walls and suddenly there's a flush or a bolus of oxygen-rich but also oxygen-free radical-rich blood rushes into that area and as that those oxygen free radicals go to work on that delicate damaged sensitive ischemic cardiac tissue it punches holes in those cardiac cell membranes those cardiac cells start to take on water water rushes into the cell they become hydrophilic and they swell and they burst and the very cells that we were trying to to reoxygenate to improve We've just killed with a big flush of oxygen free radicalized blood. This mechanism we've understood for many, many years. It's called reperfusion injury, a reperfusion injury. And so, as there's a reperfusion of blood flushing back through to what was previously an ischemic piece of tissue, there is inevitable cell damage that's going to occur as a result of that. And one of the major contributing factors is the cell damage that occurs from those free radicals. Quite frankly we make more free radicals the more oxygen we breathe. So if your patient's been sat there for 10, 15, 20 minutes breathing a high flow oxygen mask before we've opened up that blood vessel then that big bolus flush of oxygen rich but free radical rich blood actually damages the very cardiac tissue that we were trying to save. Reperfusion injury can sometimes also lead to reperfusion arrhythmias. And it becomes really important, therefore, to keep a very close eye on somebody's cardiac monitor whenever we've got a patient who's got chest pain thought to be cardiac, and particularly if we had oxygen on them. Okay, so just in summary, three reasons we don't use oxygen routinely on chest pain patients, and you can translate that also straight through to to patients with a CVA. We don't routinely put oxygen on because there's nothing wrong with the haemoglobin oxygenation. Their, their, their SATs are fine. So no, no oxygen needed. Uh, the second reason is as we start to load plasma with oxygen, then we have a vasoconstrictive effect. We don't want vasoconstriction. Everything we're trying to do is reperfuse. And the third reason we don't use oxygen is because of that free radical production. More oxygen equals more free radicals. More free radicals flushing into delicate, damaged ischemic cardiac tissue causes an accelerated cardiac cell injury. We call it reperfusion injury. Three reasons. Okay. So the second part of the question was, well, why would we use oxygen? When When would we? Well, that really comes back to the first reason that we don't, and that is... If the patient had a situation where they weren't well oxygenated, let's say you had your chest pain patient arrive and their SATs were in their boots. Let's say they had saturations of 84. It is then absolutely reasonable to put oxygen on that patient. But the key is not when would we put the oxygen on, the key is when would we get to a point where we could say let's remove the oxygen. And that magic number is 96%. So, anything below 93, it's quite reasonable to put oxygen on the patient's face. Instead of going with high flow, we should start with 1 to 2 litres per minute via the nasal prongs. So, very low concentrations of oxygen. And what we want to do is titrate their saturations up until such time as their sats are sitting between 94 and 96. Any one of those numbers, we're right on the money. Now, once they hit 96, we need to consider removing the oxygen. We certainly don't want to over-oxygenate our patients for all the reasons that we've discussed in in Rationale 3, and that is the oxygen-free radical production thing, and also the vasoconstrictive thing. So just getting their saturations to mid-90s is what we're targeting. Target manage your patient to a SAT of 96, and then consider removing oxygen. Oxygen should go on to all patients that are saturated below 90, uh, with the exception of COPD patients, in which case their saturations uh, can fall down to 88. So anything below 88, it's reasonable to try and saturate, um, uh, give, give oxygen to, to bring their saturations up above 88. In a patient with chest pain, however, we really like to target their saturation somewhere around 94, 95 to 96, no higher. But sure, no no lower. Well, it's been Rob Timmings uh, with a clinic, uh, Affinity Clinical Education. That's hard to say this time of the morning. Affinity Clinical Education's podcast, uh, Inclined. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm very, very happy to take any more questions. And any questions that come through via the email, uh, I will certainly be happy to answer them as a, um, as a podcast episode. Okay, folks, we are done and dusted. See you next episode. Happy spring.